Our sermon text today is Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10. We've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and commentators will note that with this chapter, uh, it marks the beginning of a new section, a fourth and final section in the book. The preacher is, is marching toward the end in his thoughts. He is like a detective who has who has accumulated all the evidence and now he is trying to make sense of it he's trying to trying to figure out what it points toward exactly he's reached a point where he's going to make some conclusions he will commend wisdom as a thing that is indeed to be sought and yet for all of its value he will point out that not even wisdom will be able to bring us to complete ease and comfort and control over life under the sun. Before we look at this first part of Ecclesiastes 9, would you pray with me? Our Lord, we just ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to see, your, ears to hear your truth. We pray that you would help us to uh, have receptive hearts, hearts that you have made alive by your spirit. Speak to us now through your living and active word. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Here now, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10. This is the inspired word of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion for the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun go eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom, in Sheol, to which you are going. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, which inspired by God is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The other day I, I saw a story. It was a woman went to hear Mozart's Masonic funeral music at Boston's Symphony Hall. Before the orchestra started playing, she noticed a young child sitting in the row behind her, perhaps eight, maybe nine years old. And this young child was fidgety, not very steady. And the woman became very anxious, very nervous, very worried that this child was going to cause a disruption during this musical performance. She was worried and there was nothing she could do. Well, the music began, solemn, serious music, and it continued, and the performance was lovely. And much to her relief, the child did not make a sound. Well, then as the, the final note was struck and the orchestra went silent, if you've ever been to a symphony or a similar piece, you know how it is. There is that, that moment of silence when they finished and, and you're thinking, are they done? Should I applaud yet? And, and you can hear a pin drop in the room. It's completely silent. And all of a sudden, that silence was pierced by a little voice from behind her, which proclaimed, Wow! <laughs> it was perfect. The audience, of course, laughed, and then they burst into applause. Well, many of us spend a lot of our time worrying Worrying about things we can't control often. Maybe, maybe it's not things like children disrupting the symphony. Sometimes we worry about weightier things than that, don't we? We worry about things like, like politics and the economy or, or things that hit even closer to home, like, like our health and that of loved ones. There are lots of things that can lead us to worry. After all, as we look at the world, we see a world that is broken and fallen and absolutely beyond our control. This lesson has been proclaimed to us consistently throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Has it not? It, it, it seems like it would be better or at least easier if somehow we had control over things, if we could bend the world to our will, if we could dictate the course of things under the sun by the way we, we lived our lives, by our choices, by our, our actions. But alas, this is not how things are, is it? It would be one thing if we knew that we could just behave well, you know, do the things you're supposed to do. And when you do those things... Things work out, right? Because then if things didn't work out right, if you had some trial in your life, some pain in your life, you'd know, well, I just must have done something wrong and all I have to do is fix that and then, then everything will be fine. But that's not how it is. 
And as it is in all the uncertainty and lack of control that we have, we are left simply to worry, to be anxious about these things, about how the world might play out, to to be spending our days filled with dread at what might come our way. Uncertain because it seems that for both the righteous and for the wicked, all things are possible. That's what the preacher tells us as he has come back to some territory that he has covered in the past. In verse 1 he says, I, All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He says, says, make no mistake, God is sovereign. He holds all these events in his hand. The preacher is very clear on that. God is in absolute control. The problem is he doesn't control things the way we think he should control things. He does them very differently than we think he should do them. The way that we would do it, actually the way that we do do it, is we tend to find those who, who we love, those who, with whom we are pleased, and we, we show them kindness. And then there are those who are acting as if they are, or who we really think of as being our enemy, and they, we reserve pain and sorrow for, to inflict upon them. But it is not so with God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him, we read in verse 1. He's he's saying whether whether it's love or hate, we don't know how God feels towards you just by looking at what happens in your life. Because the reality is, for both the, the righteous and for the wicked, good things happen to both. And bad things happen to both. He says here, both are before him. Literally, it, it says Everything that is before them is everything, right? He's saying, you know, all the things that can happen, happen to all the people, right? It it could go either way. Anything could happen to us. God could love us, and we still might have terrible things happen to us. And some of us know this all too well, right? You've had hardship come your way. You've had pain, and you've had suffering, and you're you're certain that God loves you because, because you've read and known and believed and trusted the promises of God. You know that he loves you, and yet you look at your life and and you say, why, oh Lord, why am I suffering the way I am? God's love is no guarantee of ease and comfort. So we become racked with anxiety because anything upon anything could come our way. And anxiety is a thief of joy. Especially when we're anxious about those things that we have no control. It is the same for all, verse 2 says, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean. He who sacrifices, he who doesn't. Right? He says, says both groups. Right? He's just saying, either way, the same things happen to us. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who shuns an oath. And verse 3 says, this is an evil all that is done under the sun, the same event happens to all. He says it's, it's that vaporous life under the sun vanity, right? Where, where we just can't wrestle control or understanding out of this. God does what he does. 
preacher's told, this in, told us this in past chapters, hasn't he? Verse seven, chapter 7, in my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Chapter 8, he told us, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and if this is true with lesser deeds, it is most certainly true with the ultimate event. Right? People go to fortune tellers and psychics and horoscopes and they want to know what their future is. I can tell you what your future is. You will die. We share that future. Every one of us. It's a certainty. One out of one people die. That is what is coming. It is the great equalizer, the most prominent evidence of the vaporous nature of life under the sun. God tells us as much, it's coming our way. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. It comes because of our sin, because of our, our fallenness. Even so-called righteous people are fallen in sin. The preacher continues in verse 3, making this point. He says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. He says our hearts are full of evil. It's what Paul says when he says in Romans 3, referring to the Psalms, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fell in Genesis 3. We read earlier about Genesis 2 and how everything was wonderful and good, right? We know if we just go to the very next chapter that all that is very good becomes not so good anymore. Because creation falls with the sin of man. And we know this fallenness if we consider our own actions, don't we? We, we walk through life and we, we want to be faithful. We want to be pleasing to God. We want to do the right thing. And yet we look at our lives and we realize if we're honest at all with ourselves that we stumble time and time and time again. Paul says it in Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where, where there's something that you just don't want to do, you hate it, and yet you find yourself doing it over and over again? Returning like, like a dog returns to his vomit. So is a fool in his folly. That's what the Proverbs tell us. And yet, that is how we are, is it not? We return to our sin time and time again, Paul says, I know nothing, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Thank God that as the hymnist put it, my hope is found in nothing less Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because if it were my own righteousness that, that secured my hope, then I would be hopeless. But because Christ Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I can have hope. 
It is, is something that God has done, not something that I do. Peter puts it this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the gospel, friends. That is the gospel. Not that we do anything to please God. Not that we do anything to make ourselves righteous. Not that we can accomplish or merit any kind of, of salvation that is justifiable on our own doing. No. The gospel is that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It is all of God, all of grace, all of him. So that we who were once dead in our sins are now alive in Christ Jesus if only we trust in him. And if we are alive in him, we who were once dead in our sins now have a living hope. And that, brothers and sisters, is a reason for joy. Is it not? Verse 4, the preacher tells us, he who is joined with all the living has hope. Has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that little proverbial wisdom there. A living dog is better than a dead lion. You know, we think of dogs, you know, it's man's best friend. You know, a cute, cuddly, I saw the cutest little puppy yesterday walking down my street. Oh, my goodness. It's about this big and, oh, just adorable. That's not the kind of dog that we're talking about here, right? When they talk about a dog in the scriptures here, they're not talking about a household pet. They're talking about, talking about a scavenger. You know, think in terms of like a, 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 I don't know, like a hyena or something, you know, just, just this dirty just, just sick, dirty, just ugly, horrible, diseased, disgusting, mangy, ugh. right? That's what it's talking about. And it's saying, better to be that and be alive than to be the magnificently regal king of the beasts and be dead. Right? Because, because if you're dead, it doesn't matter how gloriously regal you were. You're dead! But if you're alive, at least you are alive. You might have no merit in and of yourself. You might have nothing that commends you. But if you're alive, at least you have that going for you. Better a living dog than a dead lion, he says. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward for them. Memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Forever have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The living at least have knowledge of how things are and have a portion of life. The dead have neither. Now you might say, but, but Pete, wouldn't we kind of be better off having neither? I mean, this knowledge of how things work out, it's great to have it, but, but it's a pretty bleak knowledge. I mean, what you're saying is we're all broken. 
we have no control over life, and then we die. It's not exactly a wonderful knowledge to have. And yet it is. Because it reminds us, it tells us, it instructs us, it teaches us that if that is how life is under the sun, we are not able to save ourselves. We are not able to help ourselves. We need someone from outside of such a life to come save us. We need somebody who is other than us to come near. And that is exactly what God in Christ Jesus has done. He has come from outside. The Creator has become as a creature. He has become like us. And he has lived a perfect life where we have failed at every turn. And he has died an atoning death where we could never atone for ourselves. And he has risen from the dead, conquering death that would have conquered each and every one of us. And so we can trust in him. We can trust in him and we can know salvation. And the fact that we have this knowledge of how life is means we can, we can, we can come to this knowledge of how life can be. We can come to the knowledge of true life in Christ Jesus if we are still living. Life in this fallen world is broken. But it is the life that God has made us for. We need to realize that. That God did not just make us to be spiritual beings. We sometimes think in these terms. right? We think that, that I just got this body here. And, and someday I'm going to die. And my spirit will go off to heaven. And then that will be good. Because my spirit will be off where it's supposed to be. And I'll no longer be dragged down by this body. That, that's not biblical teaching. It's, it's, it's like platonic nonsense. We've got to realize when God created us, he created, created us as, as a spirit in a body, right? Both are us. Sometimes I hear people say, well, that's just my body. That's not me. I'm really my spirit. No, that is you. God gave you that body. You are body and spirit. And when we die and our body is laid in the ground, our spirit goes to be, goes to be with the Lord if we are in Christ Jesus. But that is not the end. Because there is a day coming when Christ Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will rise and we will gloriously have our bodies and our spirits brought together again. For those who have died and gone to be the Lord, with the Lord, that is better by far, but there is still something lacking. A reunion of body and spirit. For we will not ultimately find our end in going to heaven. Ultimately, we find our end in heaven coming to earth. Because in the last day, that's what will occur. Christ Jesus will return and, and heaven with him when there will be a new heavens and a new earth joined together. And that is our ultimate end. And so we should, we should see that, that we are not just spiritual beings trapped in a physical body. No, we are spiritual and physical beings meant to live a spiritual and physical life. And so what does that mean for us now? Well, it means the preacher says in verse 7 that you should do this. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He says, go, go live a physical life. Enjoy the meal that God has given you. 
He has provided this food for you. Enjoy it. Eat it. It's not just like this is fuel and I have to eat it and I can't really enjoy it because to enjoy it would be to not be faithful to God, you know, because I'm not supposed to be happy ever. No. Enjoy it. It's a wonderful thing. If you have a delicious meal set before you, eat it and enjoy it. And give thanks to God for the glorious meal that he's given you. He says, says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, does this mean that, that you should go out and get drunk? No. The Bible's very clear about that. But, but I find it hard to get around the fact that he does say to eat your bread and drink your wine. He says he's given you these gifts. You, you shouldn't be gluttonous. You shouldn't be a drunkard. But he has given good gifts to you to enjoy approved already approved what you do it's not a license to sin but an affirmation that the gifts of God are good he says go go you know he starts with that term it's interesting he starts with that term this is an imperative there's an urgency to this he says you know uh, get around to it eventually no he says go go and 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 eat and drink and he says go let your garments be be white and and let not oil be lacking on your head you know it's the opposite of one who's in mourning he's drawing a contrast there right when you're in mourning the idea is you dress in sackcloth and, and ashes and you wouldn't wash your face and your hair would be scraggly if you have hair you know and it's just you know it's just that's the way it would be he says that should not be our default state we shouldn't walk through life doom and gloom and pouting and sad. No, we should have a joy that fills our step. There should be a bounce in our step, a, a, a joy that we exude as those who are his. Certainly there's a time for mourning, but that shouldn't be the default. And he says, says you should enjoy comfort and companionship. He says enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. He says, says, all the days of your life. He says, life might seem vain. It seems like it's not controllable. It seems like there's, there's nothing you can do to figure things out. He says, but I've given you gifts. Food and drink. And, and your wife that you love, he says, for instance, I think it works the other way too. If, if he's speaking to you, if you're a woman, the husband, or, or, or others, I think as well, even companions, friends, loved ones. The idea is love those who God has given you to love and enjoy their companionship, their friendship, the, the, the nurture that they give you as family members and as loved ones. Love them and find joy in them because that is your portion in life, he says. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead to which you are going. And he says, work too is a gift from God. Work is a gift from God. We are created to work, all of us, man and woman, child. We're created to work. That's what he does. He makes us to work, to do his work. It's interesting, Luther is reputed to have said, I don't know if he really said it or if this is one of those kind of apocryphal things, but I, I love the quote, so we're going to use it. Uh, Luther, Luther supposedly said, if I knew tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree today. Right? The idea there is that, that 
if I had work I was supposed to do, even if I knew it wasn't going to see out you know, bare fruit down the road, I, I'm going to do the work I have today. I'm going to do what God has called me to do today. I'm not going to worry about down the road. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do today. I'm going to go about my work, and I'm going to do that work, whether it's work at a job that, that maybe isn't as, as fun as I'd like. I'm blessed personally. I have a job I love. But I at one time had a job where I dreaded going to sleep on Sunday night because I knew it meant I had to wake up on Monday morning. Right? And many of you have been there. Or maybe it's the kind of jobs that you have as a volunteer at, at, at church or, or somewhere else. You know, or maybe it's work this day, especially we point out as a, as a mother, right? Where, where there's, there's a work that is, is undervalued in our culture. And yet, at the same time, is a glorious gift. Whatever kind of work you're doing, do it all, not just for for the sake of that work, but for the glory of God. Do it to, to God's glory because that's what you're created to do for all of us, in fact. He says whether it's, it's food or drink or whether it's relationships that we have with others or whether it's, it's the tasks that God has given to us, we are to do them in such a way that we enjoy God. That's what he's saying here. What, what, remember the first question of the shorter catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We always talk about the glorify God part, right? That that's glorify God, glorify God, but and enjoy him forever. Life with God is not to be a drudgery. It is not to be a, a, a gloomy thing. We enjoy God Paul says in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with his joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we are to rejoice in the good things of life. That is what the preacher is telling us today. Rejoice. Ours is not to be some ascetic life that is ever gloomy. Rejoice. For as the psalmist put it, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Let our lives be filled with joy. You know, I began this sermon with a story about the symphony and the little boy who was so overjoyed at that occasion. He said, wow! You know, the conductor wanted to find this little boy and so they did a thing online where they were searching for him and ended up getting connected with him and came to find out that this little child is actually a little boy who's on the autism spectrum and actually is almost completely nonverbal. He hardly ever speaks. How much more special does that make that, doesn't it? Someone who, who almost never speaks was still moved, so moved on that occasion. He proclaimed, Wow. 
the joy that he had in his heart bubbled up. It, it, it had to be expressed. You know, I think too often we fail to notice the things in life. Or, or if we notice them, we, we just do so in a passing perfunctory way. We, we need to notice them, really bring them in and, and enjoy them. Glory in them. Be wowed by them. Just the other day I had somebody tell me, I asked them how they were doing. They said, well, each day that I'm vertical and above ground is a good day. And I kind of laughed. Perhaps that's an oversimplification. We don't want to minimize the very real difficulties we face in life. And yet there's some truth to that, isn't it? Each day we live is a good day. So every day perhaps we should be well served to start our day reminding ourselves of Psalm 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we thank you for the glorious beauty of all that is around us. We thank you for the many gifts that you have given us. We pray that you would more and more give us eyes to see them and a heart to be wowed by them. And most of all, may we be wowed by your love shown to us in Christ Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's in his name we pray. Amen.